we continue on in First Peter, wrapping up this topic of godly living, and we'll be looking at uh, the idea of interactive godly living. Uh, it's always interesting to me how certain projects get wrapped up, whether that's work or something at the house. Uh, sometimes toward the end of a project, there's not much left to be done, and so it's easy sailing uh, for a while. People start getting used to having no serious obligations. Uh, basically, the project should have been finalized weeks ago, uh, but somehow they're still tinkering slowly with it. And so the emphasis is off, the pressure is off. However, at other times, a project is worked on diligently all the way uh, up to the end. Important components are worked out and discussed even in the last stages of the work. Well, if you look at Peter's topic or instructions on living the godly life, uh, they end in the second manner, uh, doing serious work all the way to the close. Uh, He started this conversation back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he kind of listed the general principle of godly living, talking about our inner life and our outer life. And then he moved uh, to our response to government. That's 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. On into our work, 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. And then he linked it all to a big why. So in the center of what he was teaching, he wanted to tell us why. And it's because of our Savior. And that was the close of chapter 2. But he followed that all up continuing this idea of godly living with a close look at marriage and the family, which is what we looked at last week, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And he showed us that godly living permeates the everything of life. And you can notice that there's a general principle of godly living. And then we moved into more specific areas and areas that kind of increased in their intensity as we walk through. We deal with our government consistently, but it doesn't feel the same as how often we deal with who we work for or where we work. And then you have the central component of why in the world would you submit to these things? Why would you act the way you act? And then he dove into, which was last week, the marriage and the family, which is your interaction constantly. You interact constantly with your family and in your home. And now he's wrapping it up or he's resting his case and he's kind of building on this idea that godly living permeates the all of the life of the believer. And he closes by looking at what I title interactive godly living, specifically how we react toward the church is how he's closing toward believers and then how we should react to the world, unbelievers. And then he centers all of that again on the reward of such godly interaction. So View this as his summary, in essence. He's finishing his thought as he moves to believers and unbelievers, but this is his, his summary of godly living, and he starts off saying, finally, and he's not saying he's closing his letter down. He's closing a topic, and that's why it's there, and then looks immediately <coughs> at how we interact with the church, showing our godly interaction with believers, and that's verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Now, it's helpful as we look and dive into what Peter is writing to remember what Christ said. John thirteen thirty four through 35 says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another." Because how we care for, respond to, and interact with fellow believers, 
speaking of the church, becomes a clear avenue of gospel proclamation. And if you remember through the marriage and the family and through government and through work, one of the goals and and, and emphasis of godly living is a consistent priority of gospel proclamation. How are we preaching truth through our life? And Peter hasn't moved from that. And so he's diving in uh, to the church. And as he looks at how we respond to our heavenly family, how we love God's family, he zeroes in on the principle of unity, being a connected and loving family of God. Now, for unity to be biblically feasible, it first and foremost, we need to be unified in truth. And that's why he launches with that word of one mind or be harmonious. And it's talking here about being harmonious or of one mind around the essentials of the faith. Godly living calls believers to have, and the word in Greek translates directly as same thinking. Have the same thinking about truth, about gospel truth. It needs to be aligned on scripture. And that means as an individual, what does that look like? It means we bring our mind into conformity with the word of God. If we are going to be of one mind, it is not going to be accomplished by us sitting here and deciding what is one mind look like. It is only going to be accomplished by us taking our thinking and conforming it to what scripture says. And as believers do that in the church, as they function as God's called them to do, then they will then think the same because their mind has been changed by God's word. I put these little thought questions in here just to kind of prod our mind along. Do we though? Do we bring our thoughts, our perspectives, our desires, our interpretation and applications into conformity with God's word? And process that honestly. I was working through this sermon and then I was thinking, um, trying to think that question out as I was, I was working and writing. And I realized how often I don't subject my thinking to God's word, how I will run with my thinking and find God's word to support how I think. And that's not what we're doing. We're not saying being crafty with scripture. I'm talking about taking what you think and filtering it through God's word so that your lie gets worked out. My faulty emotions get worked out, and I have a tendency to justify how I feel about something. Well, I'm upset, so let me find a way to make this biblical anger, right? It's a convenient move to to make, right? Instead of saying, is this a biblical emotion? Is this supported in Scripture? Is this right? And I'm just using one idea here. Do we bring our thoughts, perspectives, desires interpretation, application, and conformity with God's word. To be unified, and that's what Peter's saying, our interaction with believers is to be on the the basis of same thinking. And for that to work, it has to be conformed to God's word. Godly behavior expressed in the church involves being of one mind, not through compromise, but instead through alignment on one authoritative standard, and that's scripture. It is from that foundation his word, that we are then prodded to be unified in empathy, having compassion one of another, to be sympathetic. And here, this is the idea that comes in. And and interestingly enough, we're going to hit another word that deals with our emotions 
about being pitiful, which is it's having compassion. It's going to talk about the depth of the emotion. Here it's talking about the connective nature of the emotion. And this is living life together. It's having a shared passion. Romans 12, 15 says this, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. And this is an on-purpose connecting of our emotions, of allowing what fellow believers are feeling to shape how we are feeling, both in difficult times and in times of victory. And the reality is this, we actually struggle more because of our jealousy and our desire for what other people have. We struggle more rejoicing with those than rejoice, often than those that weep, because we have a hard time being happy for, and not just for, happy with someone else. They're experiencing something and they're happy, and I want to come alongside and be happy with them, but I don't have it. I don't have that thing, and suddenly it's hard to be happy with them. And so you have to understand, as we come to be unified in empathy, it does mean not just happy for, it means happy with, it means changing my emotions to align with those in the church. Yet godly living, godly interaction demands that of us. And you realize that Peter is not letting up on godly living here. He's not tailoring it down at all, but instead feels like he's ramping up on what we need to do as we interact with the church, shaping on purpose our feelings to support the feelings of the body of Christ, united in empathy, but also it says united or unified in love, love as brethren, display saying a brotherly love. And what he's pointing to is he's saying this needs to be a serving love, a love of loyalty, Now, one of the, not as that's a mistake, but we sometimes dive into love and we look at agape love and we we tear them in a hierarchy. And and that's a mistake because they use different words. And what happens is when we read the word Philadelphia love, we start thinking, oh, it's second tier love. No, it has to do with what you do, what that love does or how it expresses itself. And he lists a brotherly love because that is a serving love. It's a love of loyalty. It's a family love. And if you think about that, we're, we're typically loyal to our families. We're, we're connected. We, we come alongside. We serve our families. I put as another thought question, I wonder, though, how loyal we are to our fellow believers. How quick are we to defend, to help? Because we're supposed to be unified in love, and on purpose he uses a, a love that works It's no theory here. This is a love that gets at the ground level. Godly living demands love, a love that is active and working, a love that will then change how we feel, causing us now to be unified in in emotion. The word they use is be pitiful, and that's not look, that's a poor pitiful creature, but instead it means kind-hearted or tender-hearted. So it's not actually speaking about how pitiful you look, and that's how we're going to think of the word, but instead how quickly you will feel or how deeply you'll feel for someone else. And so you think, wait a second, it sounds the same as the other one. They're talking about the same topic. I used empathy on the other one because it's how we connect with people. Here he's speaking to how deep this goes. This is the depth of our emotion. And what it's calling for is a powerful kind of feeling something that goes to the core of who we are. And some of us 
struggle with that, right? To let how we feel go to the depths of who we are. I'll joke and tell people I'm the tin man. Good luck finding the heart. It's not there, right? It's, it's, you can hunt and hunt. It's just not going to be found. And the fact is, as believers, that's not an excuse we have. But see, God calls us to have our emotions connected to others. And then literally two words later or two ideas or concepts later, he's saying, and I want that connection to be a deep connection. I want it to go to the core of who you are. And I put, ask yourself a moment, how deeply do you feel for the church? Do you feel for the church, walk out and forget how the church feels? That's not a deep feeling. You might have been empathetic in the moment, but it didn't go to the core of who you were. You felt lightly for the church. And a lot of us are, are, are there, right? We got this touch, like, we, we, yes, I feel for them. In that moment, I feel this pain for the church, or I rejoice with them, and then I walk out, and I'm in my own world and my own life. See, when it talks about the depth of your feeling, it's how long and how, how much does it change your life? Is it beyond just the Sunday hit? As I'm sure we're gathering, Peter's expectations for godly living are not tailoring off. They're not weakening. Instead, his expectation involves the all of us and will involve the sub- subjection of our own self-pride and elevation. You see, as we interact with the church, we must be unified in humility, The word be courteous means to have a humble mind, to be humble in spirit. And that hits home, doesn't it? The thought that I actually need to change how I think about myself. God wants me to alter my self-image, my self-elevation. And that is very countercultural. We live in a world, and, and let's be honest, it's nice to say the world today is promoting themselves. Everyone's been promoting themselves since the beginning of time. But, but think about this. Peter, Peter doesn't know what it takes to have a good profile, right? To have a good image online. And I, I need to be um, getting people to like me. And how would I do that if I'm not constantly talking about me and promoting me? How in the world would anyone know about me without all my self-promotion? And Peter's saying it's not even a biblical, biblical move at all. That's not what we're about. We're supposed to be humble in spirit. Philippians 2.13 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Stated another way, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Push the pause button. Do you look around the room and see a lot of people that are more important than you? Or when we look around the room, we see people that should serve us. This is setting aside you and the promotion of you and your agenda and the way, even in the working of church and ministry, how you'll function. Because he's speaking to the church here. Don't, don't interact in a way that promotes yourself. It's the opposite of everything that comes naturally to us, but it is vital to living godly. MacArthur notes this, the joys of their lives in Christ are maximized when believers are unified in truth and life with one another, peaceful in disposition, gracious toward those who need the gospel, sensitive to the pains of fallen sinners, sacrificial and loving service to all, compassionate instead of harsh, and above all, humble like their Savior. Humility is a vital component of godly living. But here's what I hope we can gather. We're not going to just trip and fall into that. It will not ever happen 
by accident. And by the way, when Peter is writing, the concept of humility was unheard of. To be humble is to be despicable. To, to subject yourself in the Roman world, and actually humility is a Christian-only concept. It was something that, that was brought into the world's thinking because of Christ. Any thinking of humility you see in the world that even may not be connected directly to Christianity has its roots in Christianity because humility was just spurned. To be humble, you might as well just execute yourself is how they would think of it. You didn't do that. And yet Peter is writing to that culture and saying, be humble in spirit. But to do it won't just happen to you. You must purposely be united in truth, which means you align yourself with God's word, united in empathy, love, and emotion, placing the needs of the church in front of your own, serving them loyally, and then finally united in humility, setting aside you and your elevation, your pride, setting aside the easiest motivation of all. What motivates us more than anything else? Ourselves. What motivates me to stop at a restaurant? being hungry. Who needs to be hungry? I need to be hungry. Otherwise, I think everyone else in the car can make it just a little bit further. (laughs) Right? And if you're driving, I guess that's helpful, right? See, motivated by self, this is natural to us. This is what we do. And instead, as believers, we're to choose and work to be motivated by his church and his purpose. We're motivated to live Christ's way. Yet we know that in the everyday of life, our interactions will not only be with believers. It will not only be the church. Instead, we know that we are in the world. We're not of it, but we are in it. And so we are basically guaranteed the opportunity for godly interaction with unbelievers. And this is where he's landing on in verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. And the idea here is we're to portray a heavenly perspective. As I just read up front there with what MacArthur wrote, be gracious to those who need the gospel, sensitive to the pains of fallen sinners, and that will never be accomplished by answering this world in kind in how they act toward us. Instead, it calls for godly grace to be extended, grace that could only be offered by a believer in light of their redemption or their inherited blessing. So here we are focused first on not being worldly, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. This is making sure, and again, very on purpose, that we don't pollute our gospel witness with what the world would consider is a justifiable response. The world understands this. If someone punches me, I can punch them back. If you attack me online, I'm allowed to attack you online. If this happens to me, then I can. They they understand the justifiable response. They actually get the eye for eye, tooth for tooth idea. Peter is acknowledging that evil is, is given and by the world standard is therefore a merited response. The world understands blow for blow, insult for insult, but we're reminded by God to turn the other cheek. Peter is addressing how easy it is to respond in kind, how quickly our tongues can get loose, and instead of promoting Christ and his kingdom, it ends up promoting 
our own kingdom. Because as we respond to the world, and again, I'll talk about this, God doesn't call us to be a doormat, but he calls us to be something completely different than what the world does and promotes. And we're not here to get good at how the world responds, and I'll mention clean up how the world responds, but instead to completely reject it and respond in a way that promotes the gospel. Godly interaction with the world means purposefully not acting like the world. On purpose, I'm not going to do what the world does. Not using their wicked disposition and hateful speech as a launching point for a response, even though they would assume that type of response from us. And I put as a question here, are we willing to set aside what is an equitable or justifiable reaction and set that aside for Christ and his glory? Can I set aside my right to zing the world, my right? And again, I'm not talking about laying down and we're going to we're going to talk about this. It doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can in our courts and our system to push back against the lies and sin of this world. It doesn't mean we don't use every advantage there. I'm getting into the daily interaction that we have. And are we willing to set aside what maybe we have the right to do so that we can do what will promote Christ and his glory? But Peter is not going to be satisfied with the idea of just not responding. Instead, he calls us to be focused on being Christ-like. And this is where it gets tough. Because the idea of not responding has that stoicism, right? All right, I'll just stand here and take it, and that's what God wants me to do. But that's not what he wants me to do. He actually wants me to give a blessing. That's hard. Now, what is that? And people have misapplied this over and over again. This is not writing a thank you note to the person destroying your business because you stand for Christ and his values. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're a horrible person. That's, that's not what it is. It's not laying down. It's not being a doormat. This does not mean condoning evil behavior because that will make the vile sinner feel good. But it does mean having a Christ-like focus toward that person. It involves an eternal perspective and zeroes in on being a truly eternal blessing. Here are a few things I want you to think about as you approach it because it's been misapplied, right? People will say, well, that's what the world's going to do to you, so just lay down and take it. Do nothing about it. That means every battle we fought in the Supreme Court and won is, is unbiblical. That's not the truth. We're supposed to stand up for truth and for what is right. But here is what it means to be an eternal blessing. Love them unconditionally in Christ that our emotion towards these sinners doesn't turn towards hate. Pray for their salvation consistently. Forgive them in Christ completely. These are a couple things that link to being an eternal blessing. And in the central one, pray for their salvation consistently, should never leave our mind. What is the one blessing that everyone would need? And that's Christ. And so as a believer, that is what we're fixated on. How in the world is that feasible? Because we are focused on our eternal inheritance. We can respond in this way from the basis of being redeemed. We can bless because we have been eternally blessed 
by our Lord and Savior. Our blessing that we extend, and I'm specifically zeroing in on that idea of praying for their salvation, is something that should be natural for us because we have been redeemed from our sin. We belong to him and can therefore respond as him and should. Don't forget what scripture says. We are his ambassadors. We represent him. We speak his words. That is our role and calling in this life. We're called to righteous living, godly living. That is what knowing that you're thereunto called means. It doesn't mean, hey, your calling is to be blessings, you know, so some Christians go out, I need to bless. Here's a hundred dollars to everyone. I'm being a blessing. That's not what it's saying. It's actually you're called to righteous living. You're called to godly living. That's what your calling is, the everyday of it. And that's what's driving us to know that we're to live godly lives. And how do we do that? Knowing that such living is rewarded. See, as believers to live godly, we must correctly understand the rewards of godly interaction. And this is 10 through 12. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open under their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, I want to give you a little background here. Peter, in the midst of godly living, is just now quoting Scripture almost directly. Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And so right in the midst of his letter, he puts a, he puts a Scripture quote. And it's interesting to understand how the New Testament authors and how Christ actually would have portrayed and viewed Scripture because they believed in the authority of God's Word. Christ himself lived that principle out. There's a guy named Robertson McKilkin writes this, for Christ and the apostles to quote the Bible was to settle an issue. And I want you to understand that premise. Here's Peter writing to the church, the, the elder statesman, the apostle. He has all the authority he needs. When I say I doubt they're questioning his right to write and that his knowledge, and yet in the midst of this letter, he now puts, and it's Holy Spirit inspired, quoting God's words. You want to see the layered authority? Here is the elder apostle writing to the churches that he's been working with. And then in that letter, he is putting God's word yet again. He's making sure they understood. He's making emphatically clear from scripture, irrefutable, the reality that living a godly life filled with good works, good defined by God's standard, results in the good days. In other words, Living a godly life is living your best life. And this is the right way to live your best life, not the garbage that's out there. This life requires us, though, to be actively engaged, resisting wrong and pursuing what is right. And Peter is saying with Scripture, to make it doubly emphatic, this is the best life you could live. We must not speak from the foundation of this world, the evil, God is not interested in how well you can manage to handle this world's methodology. He's not interested in how you clean it up and make it Christian. He commands us to completely reject it. Instead, he says, we must speak truth, be absolutely committed to only speaking truth and truth, his truth and lips that they speak no guile. In other words, there's no deceit in them. Where can no deceit be found? Only in speaking truth. His truth. That's where no deceit is found. 
And those instructions continue to deal now with our actions. He starts with our, our mouth, because if you read through James and other books, our mouths get us in trouble. Our lips are quick to attack. It's the easiest way to hurt someone, is it not? We use our words immediately. We respond with that. And so he deals with how we talk. And then he deals with actions. He says we must turn away from evil. That's the skew evil, which means in honesty in Greek, it's an intense, strong rejection of what is sinful. It's not just a a turning because that's kind of how we, oh, we casually turn away, but instead it's almost like a violent reaction against sinful. It's, it's, it's intense and strong. It, it means we're almost running away from it. And then he goes on and says, do good. And that means do what is of an excellent quality and of deep down virtue. It means not necessarily doing your own thing or what makes you feel good or what is the thing to do in the moment. It's do what is truly good. What scripture says is good. Uh, we've walked through, our culture has been uh, it just constantly pounding us. And sadly, believers got caught into what is good, what you should do to be good. That's not where we get our mantra from. And so many Christians, well, I'm doing that. Well, they're happy with this. I'll chase that. That's what I'll do. Now we get what we need to do from scripture. And that's what we follow through on. We're not chasing what the world thinks is good or may be a good action, but instead zeroed in what what Christ says is good in doing that. It says to seek peace and pursue it. Let him seek peace and, and ensue it. That means pursue. Seeking and pursuing are words of intense and aggressive action. And here's the idea, hunt for it. And in Greek, it's telling you to hunt and it's picturing someone on the hunt. You are going to make sure you get, quote unquote, the kill there. Peace, as MacArthur notes, denotes a constant condition of tranquility that produces permanent joy and happiness. Christians are to be known in the world as peacemakers, those who strive for harmony with others as much as possible without compromising the truth. And so what Peter says is, as you are Living out the rewards, you're going to be a hunter of peace. You desire to be a peacemaker, but peacemaking is not achieved through compromise. But you understand what you're seeking for. It is that commitment and execution of God's calling to godly living that leads to that best life now and eternally. But we also must know that this is a blessed life as well. That's verse 12. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And I want you to understand why that is supreme blessing. Nothing can be more blessed than our supreme sovereign Lord stating that he will lean into our lives. He's going to put his head into our prayers. If you're reading in some translations, they'll italicize some words. Those words aren't actually in the Greek. And so if you're reading for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open are actually to help us understand and his ears unto their prayers. And so instead of it just that he listens to us, the image that the Greek is trying to paint for us is that God puts his because he's giving God doesn't need to put his head into our prayers. But it's like God putting his head into the circle of a conversation leaning into life and leaning into our conversation. And what he's trying to show us is that we worship and serve a very connected Savior and Lord. He is no distant deity. 
He is the involved sovereign one and promises that he is looking in intently into our life. And again, these are all things to help us understand how God is interacting with us for our benefit. That's why it's a blessed life. We forget because sometimes we think that God is running a zoo and we're locked in the zoo and he's going to see how we react to different stimulation. It's like he's running a science project. Ah, I wonder if I torture that guy a little bit, see how he reacts. That's not what God's doing. And that's what Peter is trying to help this church understand, who is walking through persecution and difficulty, that God is leaning in to them for their benefit. And he makes the contrast by what's promised to the wicked. There, his involvement, and by the way, notice that it's not distance, it's involvement. The world never understands that. You need God, you seek God. God's involved in the life of the wicked, but it's expressed in judgment and righteous anger. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And that, that idea of face depicts his, his active action against wickedness. He's not casual about that either. So for those who live godly, for believers, he is intently focused. The, the picture is of God. And again, God doesn't need to lean down and he doesn't have to have all the features we have. But scripture describes it that way so we can understand it. He's leaning into our conversation. He's leaning into our lives for benefit. But for the wicked, he is in and, and involved, but it's for judgment and anger. Here's the real question for us, though, as believers. Will we believe that what God says is the good life is the good life? Because that's the sticking point. If you're here listening, you're thinking, man, Kenny's off his rocker. I am, but always, but not Scripture. Scripture is telling us this is the good life. That's what it says. If you want to know good days, and that's why Peter, in the midst of writing to a persecuted church, is quoting Scripture, his authority as an apostle, layered and, and actually reinforced by quoting Scripture. This is the final say. A good life, the good life, is lived this way. But the question is, do we believe what Scripture says? Or have we been duped by the world and its glitter and trinkets? Have we been blinded to truth and been set on pursuing what they say is the good life? Here's the truth. They're not compatible. You're either going to believe God and say, I will live a godly life as he has described it, as he has commanded it, as he's called me to live it, and trust that this is the good life both now and eternally, or you're going to chase the world because you can't blend those two. They're not compatible at all because one is wickedness and one is righteousness. We're called to godly living, to interacting Christ's way in the church and with those outside of it, regardless of how they treat us. A couple questions. Will we follow his example? Will we look at the life of Christ and say, this is how I'm going to respond in these circumstances, will we respond his way? He's promised that if we do, we'll see good days. We will live the truly good life. But will we believe him? Will we trust God and his promises, even when faced with the worst this world has to offer? 
And this, if you, if you look at Scripture, this concept permeates. We were in Job before this, and that's a very long book that we worked completely through. And there was this underlying premise, are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? Are you going to trust your own perception of your life? Or are you going to trust what God says is true about your life? Do we believe that he is truly good for his word? Because that's really the breaking point on whether you're going to live a godly life or not. Do you believe what God has said is the truth? MacArthur writes this, Christians, whether today or in Peter's time, have always had to contend with a hostile world. But they can live humbly, respond to persecution in a Christ-like manner, and adhere to God's standard of authority because they have the promise that even in the midst of trying circumstances, God is watching over them, protecting them, and ready to extend his blessings. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you to understand your word, to recognize your calling on our lives. As, we, as we've looked at godly living and studied through that, we recognize that it's so drastically different than what this world would say is the good life. But Peter's closing out his whole statement with proof just to help us, help the church then and help us now to understand that the good life is lived godly. That what he's called us to, what Christ has called us to, results in what's best both now and eternally. But we, as his people, must trust him. We must confide in him that no matter what we feel or think, we understand that his promises are true and that instead of standing on our own foundation, we will stand on his promises, knowing that they will be accomplished. I ask as we walk out of church that we will be confronted with how we live our lives, that what needs to change will change no matter how difficult it is for us, that we will have a perspective shift, that we will see life from your perspective and not from our own, that we will believe what you have said no matter how we feel or think. In your precious and holy name, amen.